Welcome to the Building the Elite podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments. Admiral Robert Harward is one of the most accomplished U.S. Navy SEALs in history. After graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy, his NSW career began when he graduated with BUDS Class 128 in 1984 and then joined SEAL Team 3, where he served as a platoon commander. From there, he screened for NSW Development Group, the U.S. Navy's Tier 1 unit, which at the time was known as SEAL Team 6. There, he served as an assault team leader and operations officer. He earned his master's degree in national security and strategic studies from the Naval War College, and then served as a task group commander during Operation Desert Thunder in Kuwait, the Joint Special Operations Task Force Commander for Operation Rugged Nautilus, then the deputy commander of the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force in Bosnia. After that, the Special Warfare Plans Officer for the Commander of Amphibious Forces in the U.S. 7th Fleet, and then the U.S. SOCOM aide-de-camp to the Commander-in-Chief, then as the Executive Officer of NSW Unit 1, and finally as the Commanding Officer of SEAL Team 3. Admiral Harward then assumed command of NSW Group 1 in August of 2001, and deployed to Afghanistan shortly after the 9-11 attacks. He commanded a multinational task force named Task Force KBAR and directed special reconnaissance and direct action missions throughout the country. The following year, he deployed to Iraq as the commander of Task Force 561, where he commanded NSW Task Group Central. The forces at his command there included not just all the assets in the naval special warfare community, but also forces from the Polish Grom, the UK Royal Marines, and the Kuwaiti Navy. In 2003, he left NSW Group 1 and reported to the Executive Office of the President at the White House, where he served on the National Security Council as the Director of Strategy and Defense Issues. He went to the newly created National Counterterrorism Center in Washington from the White House, and then served as the Deputy Commanding General of JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg, and did several more combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2008, he assumed the role of Deputy Commander of the United States Joint Forces Command. In 2011, at the rank of Vice Admiral, he was assigned the role of Deputy Commander of U.S. CENTCOM before retiring in November of 2013. After his retirement, Admiral Harward became the Chief Executive of Lockheed Martin in the UAE. He is currently the Executive Vice President for International Business and Strategy for SHIELD AI, an AI-focused defense company. Admiral Harward, it's an honor to have you here today. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Good to be here with you. You did grow up in Iran, right? I grew up in Iran. My father was a naval officer stationed there advising the Iranian Navy from, uh, I think, it's 66 to 74. Then in, when he retired in 74, he stayed uh, in the defense industry there, uh, helping to support the Iranian Navy. And then uh, in 79, when the revolution occurred, we uh, we we left. At least my mother, my sister, and I, we were in Tehran when it fell, and we saw the Shah leave. So we hmm. left a few months after that. My father stayed, and most people don't realize this, but the embassy was seized twice. Hmm. 
Hmm. First time the students stormed it and uh, released it the next day. And when that happened, I think that was August of 79. My dad said, yeah, it's time to go. And he left. And then uh, in October, November, I think, November 79, they took it again. But this time they didn't release it. And we all know they held the hostages for, uh, you know, 300 or 444 days, if I remember correctly. But aside from all that, Iran was just a, a... beautiful country. The people were wonderful. Uh, The climate was excellent. It was just a wonderful experience. And you had exposure to the rest of the world and the cultures of the world growing up. So it gave you a little different perspective than I think you have from just growing up in the States. Yeah, it's a cool upbringing. Do you still speak Farsi? That's awesome. So, so once you moved back to the U.S., you went to the Naval Academy prep school and then the U.S. Naval Academy. Where did your career go from there? Can you walk us through that? I had a short stay at flight school, but that wasn't for me. And then I went to a ship, a surface warfare officer. My father was a ship officer, SWO. So he drove ships all his life, and he thought that was the greatest thing in the world, that, uh, that it was going to be a tremendous career. And in fact, the irony of it is I ended up on one of the ships that my father had helped sell to the Shah of Iran. There were four ships. They were Spruance-class destroyers that were modified for the Gulf. And, and Iran had money, so they added missile launchers to it, sand separators for the engines because they were gas turbine engines to make sure they weren't sucking in sand from the desert as they operated in the Gulf. But then when it all collapsed in 79, we, we of course, did not deliver those ships, and I ended up being a junior officer on one of them. In fact, I had the belt buckle from the Iranian Navy because it was going to be called the IIS Palang, which wow. means the Imperial Iranian ship Palang. So, and now I'm a junior officer, so my father just thought that was the greatest thing ever. Uh, Because you also, I couldn't get into BUDS. Uh, Those years, uh, the Navy did not support the BUDS community or the SEAL community. So a career in special warfare was not uh, a sound career. I think at that time we had two O6s, two or four O6s, no flag officers. I think we were at about 1,500 in all. This was at the end of the Vietnam War, starting in 74. And so the size and scope of our activities as a the SEAL community was very limited. And in fact, we were still UDT teams and separate SEAL teams at that time. Huh. I didn't know that. they So the two existed at the same time, separate from one another, UDT and SEAL? That's correct. So when oh. I uh, I got my surface warfare designator, they would allow you to apply for BUDS. And the reason they did that is you had a career. If you went to BUDS and failed out, you could come back to a career you already had established. I think what drove that was uh, one of the uh, top-ranked midshipmen in 76, 77, number one or two in the class went to BUDS. They failed out. And it took a year for out of his career, and I don't think he ever caught up. So the Navy discouraged you from going to BUDS because it had such a high attrition rate mm-hmm. and really falling b- back in your career. I was a little the opposite because I'd spent four years on a ship and then went to BUDS. I, sh- I, I became a lieutenant at BUDS. I had the opposite concern. I had to catch up. So when I went to a SEAL team in 83, 
I was very fortunate. I went to SEAL Team 3, and I was given an OIC billet right off the slot, which caught me up with my peers. Hmm. So I, you could not do that today. But So those were the disadvantages or disadvantages of the UDT and SEAL community in, in 83. And so at that time, we still had two UDT teams and I think two SEAL teams on the West Coast, two or three at the time. And then a few years later, they dissolved the UDT teams and just subsumed them all into the SEAL team. So they were around till the, I want to say, 80s, mid-80s. We still had underwater demolition teams separate and distinct from SEAL teams. Okay. And then you, you're at Team 3 for a while, and then you screened for, at the time, they actually called it SEAL Team 6, right? Unlike, you know. That's correct. And then where did your career go from there? So while I was at SEAL Team 3, I did a Westpac deployment. I went to uh, SEAL Team 6 at the time and had two uh, tours, one with Blue Team and one with Red Team. And then at the time, there was this kind of animosity for uh, guys from SEAL Team 6 because a lot of the officers got out. And several of my peers, Sean Pipus, who, who came back and became a SEAL in our community, Frank Leslie, other peers, Frank Scully, a classmate of mine from the Academy after SEAL Team 6, they, they didn't see as there was any other future, so a lot of them got out at, at the time. I, I ended up getting orders to Japan, where I was going to go back and be the fleet planner for the young amphibious component of uh, CTF-76. So I was based in Okinawa, Japan, for a year and a half. And then from there, I went down to the Philippines and became the XO of our community. So I, I seem to spend a lot of my time overseas as opposed to in, in the States. Did you prefer it that way? Yeah, I, I liked operating. I liked being out where things were going on. I wasn't good at the admin stuff. Uh, I was more a uh, operational type of guy. So yeah, my career tended to focus that. And that thing, like anything else, it was good news and bad news associated with that separation from families, you know, a lot of risk and things you were doing. Uh, mm -hmm. But the benefit was the exposure, the people you met, like-minded people who wanted to be operators, wanted to be in the middle of it, uh, paid dividends. So I was very fortunate. The common sentiment I hear now regarding that path, like we have say, clients who have their undergrads and have the option of going in either as an officer or as an enlisted, the sentiment is that you're going to end up behind a desk a lot faster as an officer. Do you think that's true? Well, one, we, we've got a, scale, a whole different scale issue now. We have more officers than we know what to do with. Now, I'm being a bit facetious, there, but reality, we have a lot of officers competing for the billets we offer every year. We have a lot of uh, positions for them to fill. But yeah, part of the, you know, our responsibility is resource, train, and equip, and we need our officers to lead that. So uh, I'd say there are a lot more desk jobs for officers than there are enlisted force, rightfully so, but that's mm -hmm. what we're uh, promoting them for. But remember, again, uh, up until 9-11, as SEALs and operators, you, you weren't in a lot of uh, events. You know, you maybe you did Panama, maybe you did the Gulf War, maybe you did Bosnia, maybe, you know, uh, but those were episodics. 9-11 changed that where we went into conflict. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, the responsibilities of our, our officers is to make sure we're prepared for when we shift from those times t- from peace to war and vice versa. And that includes the morale, uh, the culture of the teams and what we do. So I think it's a much more broader role. It's much more challenging. There's much more risk. But the goal is to realize the full potential of all of our people. And so we're looking for people who come into the community willing to support whatever we need, not just their specific individual agendas. Yeah, yeah. So you took an OIC slot as soon as you got to Team 3, right, as an LT. I assume you'd had some leadership experience before that in the fleet? Well, I'd been a division officer on a a ship. So I'd Mm -hmm. led guys. I'd been in different organizations. I had a lot lot of different jobs. I was the electronic material officer. I was the weapons officer. I was the navigator. I had these different jobs in different organizations. And I'll never forget, uh, Captain Joe Quinn Cannon was this commissioning uh, captain of SEAL Team 3, and John McTie, his XO. uh, Both of them uh, had enough faith in me. And maybe... Uh, I, I think it was that way around as opposed to they just needed someone uh, mm. to fill the number of platoons they had. But it was uh, very fortunate they had the trust and confidence to assign me an officer in charge as opposed to assistant officer in charge. So, again, um, and my real fortune was I had a great chief. I had a great LPO. The whole members of those team were predominantly new guys. They were very hungry. They were very hard uh, they were very disciplined, so I had a, just a, probably uh, the best group of guys in the team at the time. I know that, and it's funny when I went to Dam Neck in SEAL Team Six, I didn't see the same professionalism or culture there that I saw in that platoon and that SEAL team. Interesting. So it was a very interesting time, but that's what made me successful, and I think that's been the, my fortune all my career. My success was predicated all the people I worked with. And I worked for as well as them working for well for me. So right. I, I was fortunate as a great group. We get a lot of questions from young officers who are stepping into roles like that, like their first leadership role, or they're being evaluated in a course on their leadership abilities when they've had very little experience. And they're aware of like the deficit that they have, or they're aware of their need to learn how to become an effective leader. What would you tell someone like that who wants to know how to become a good leader? Listen, uh, listen, listen, and more listen. Get all the advice, information you can from everyone you know. Continue to build out your network and ask questions. I think sometimes folks are hesitant to ask when they don't know or admit they don't know, but I think that's the greatest strength I've seen in leaders and having that humility. Uh, If I look at all the leaders I've worked with, the ones that really differentiated them were those ones that had the humility and, and those sort of relationships that promoted discussion and questions and understanding. So you spent 34 years in the military, right? Uh, 40 years. I enlisted 40? in the summer of 1974, May 74. I retired in January of 2014. So just a few months short of 40 years. And in that time, your career went from... Uh, from Buds to Team 3 to DevGrew to the White House eventually, kind of all over. Based on all of your experiences, what advice would you have for somebody who's either in or aspiring to be part of the special operations community? Enjoy it. It's the greatest (laughs) adventure known to man. 
Never before, and I, I would tell you this, never before has our country invested as much time, energy, or resources into developing an individual to do just about anything. And so just enjoy it first month. You, you won the lottery if you're getting the opportunity to apply, you're getting the opportunity to compete, especially going into buds. You know, a lot, I'm seeing some of these old guys talk about, hey, how hard it was. No, it was the greatest adventure known to man. Could you go in there? And I'm a little bit competitive. So I went into Bud's thinking, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to let any one of these stop me from doing it. And most of the guys I know have that kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget one of the hardest men I've ever met was my swim buddy at Bud's. His name's Rick Holman. And uh, we show up for hell week they put you in this little tent on the beach on sunday and they tell you lay down and they play soft music until it all kicks off and i'm laying on my cot and i smell beer <laughs> I, I was shocked i'm like what the hell and i'm a little nervous not about my physical skill my only concern could i handle the cold what's good when i go hypothermic and all so i lean over to rick and rick's the technical term had a little too much to drink. I go, Rick, what the <laughs> hell are you thinking? We're go and he looks at me. Uh, he had been an army ranger, I think he was, E5, and he wanted to be a SEAL so bad. In the lateral transfer, he went back to being an E1. Wow. But that's how bad he wanted, how much he wanted. And I lucked out getting him as a swim buggy because I knew he was going to make it. And I said, Rick, what? Oh, the football game. We were at the game today. It was great. We had a few beers. I go, Rick, we're starting hell week. What are you thinking? He says, oh, we're going to make it through this. No worries. It's just we just got to suck it up for the week. But it was such a great football game. Well, God bless if he can do that. Okay, <laughs> I guess I can do it, you know. Uh, and he still remains one of the hardest men I ever had. But it illustrated to me he had sacrificed so much to get there that he was going to make it. Uh, it made me think, well, I've sacrificed just as much. I've got a lot at risk here. Hell, then we'll just do it. So back to, to your question, a point, I tell him, listen, you know you want it. Just do it. Enjoy the adventure. A lot of days are going to suck. Guys are going to try. The instructors there are there to assess you. Prove to them every day you're the guy they want and need in this team. So, yeah, you're going to go hypothermic. You're not, the boat's going to knock you down. So you're going to fall short, but just get, keep going. Uh, enjoy the adventure and make the most of it because you're going to learn so much about yourself that you would have no other opportunity like this mm -hmm. where you're going to learn so much and grow so much from the opportunity. So um, just do it and, and enjoy it. And these guys say, oh, we're not at war. We're, guys, War happens next week, the month after the year. It's always out there. Never doubt that. Your job is just to be prepared and ready when we need you. And, and that's the program. So these guys, well, we're not war, so I'm getting out. No, there's some other reason they're getting out. Uh, mm -hmm. The world has always been at conflict at some point in some form, and, and we're going to need you. Uh, and so make sure you understand that. You had taken command of NSW Group 1 maybe a couple of months before 9-11. Is that right? Like on that note? The last day of August. So oh, really? <laughs> few, uh, yeah, a few days. It's funny. Uh, my buddy, uh, Bill McRaven, as you all know, Admiral yeah. McRaven, he and I had changed 
commands throughout our careers. We had both SEAL Team 3, Damnick, the White House, Jason, all the time. Well, his timing worked out bad on that one. But the irony of it was uh, I had a job where I was the aide to the commander of SOCOM. And when he retired, they asked him to go to the White House. He called me and said, hey, Bob, will you come and work at the National Security? I said, sir, I'd love to, but I'm going to command. And I, but Bill McRaven, I'm relieving Bill. Why don't you take Bill at the White House? And that's exactly what happened. So on the day of 9-11, Bill's uh, at the White House doing policy, and I'm on my way to Afghanistan, having just relieved him of the job. So the timing didn't work. Of course, timing flipped the other way later in the war. He was the guy in charge uh, of JSOC when we, we got UBL, when I was, I think, mm. at the time I was running prisons and rule of law in Afghanistan. So payback's <laughs> always out there. But if fate takes you on these, it's back to your question about these young officers. You know, we're not war, I'm getting out. Guys, the scope of activities we're going to ask and need you to do is so broad, and we may not even know now what we're going to need you to do. So that's why you, we prepare you for any time. And if there's peace now, enjoy it. Make the most of it. But always be prepared for war and conflict. Reading up on your background, it I was reading through your education plus your operational life, and it made me think of that Thucydides quote, that the society that separates its scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Where do you think as a nation we're doing well with that concept? Definitely in our military. I've, I've never seen education be stressed as much now as ever. I, I mean, I'm running, a, I ran into a guy in Abu Dhabi a few weeks ago. He was on a one year sabbatical, sabbatical from the military. He, they just hmm. let him, okay, go take a year off and come back. And, you know, and he was there doing immersion training. He had been in, I think he was somewhere else he may have been in iraq or somewhere else situation got so bad he had to come to uae i told him this isn't the best place to use arabic learn arabic but the point is that the military is stressing education so much they're providing that opportunity i was at harvard business school uh, last year and there was three of our enlisted seals in the harvard business school on assignment from the navy So at all levels, we're pressing and providing opportunities for education like we've never done before. So I'm very confident our military is educating and training our people and providing those opportunities at unprecedented levels. And I think you wouldn't meet any naval officer right now who would prefer peace to war but understand how important the application of military uh, power is. As I look across the spectrum, when I I was at the National Security Council and working with individuals from State Department, from the intel community, from commerce, again, unprecedented levels of education and knowledge. So as a country, I, I think In that lane, we're doing very well. I can't go down to the elementary school, how we're doing in the schools, and understand the challenges we're facing. But back to your question, in terms of our military force, our training, our education, and even our acceptance levels is unprecedented, probably the best it's ever been in our history, at least from my humble opinion. With that in mind, where do you think the opportunities are to do better? 
Well, it's encouraging. Uh, that's back to the leadership role. You know, I'll give you a very, I have a, my daughter's uh, not too bright because she married a SEAL after uh-huh. being a, uh, a daughter of a SEAL for a long And the reason I say that is, uh, and he's a wonderful guy, he's a wonderful dad, he's an incredible SEAL from all I hear in the community, but he's gone a lot. We don't see him, so there's a price on the family and not. And now seeing it from that perspective, as opposed to not thinking about all the stuff my wife and kids went mm-hmm. through, uh, I understand that. But he's another guy who wants to just operate. And I want him, hey, go get your master's. Go do this. Oh, I can. I'll get that. I want, you know, he's focused on being the the best seal and the best operator we can. So uh, leadership has to see those opportunities where they see this and, and identify and, and pull them out and said, okay, yeah, we know you want to operate, but you're going off and going to school or you're doing that. So I, I think it's a leadership role to in, uh, support, encourage, and sometimes just dictate we have to do that. And in today's culture, that sometimes can be a challenge uh, when uh, you know what's best for individuals, but that sometimes conflicts with what they want to do. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, personally, I was at the Naval War College, and I had my orders to go to JSOC, where I was going to be an ops officer, so I was very excited. And I get a call from Admiral Smith at the time, who commanded the Navy Special Warfare Community. He says, hey, uh, we're going to fly you down uh, Monday. I'm calling to let you know Monday you're going to fly down and do this interview with this general who's going to be head of SOCOM. Uh, and I responded to the admiral. Oh, hey, so that's okay. I got my orders. I, I, I'm going to JSOC in a month when I finish here. And the f- phone went silent. And he said, uh, "Yeah, I, I don't think you heard me. Let me say again. You're going to be on this plane Monday. You're going down for this interview." So it was not what I wanted. Uh, it was dictated to me, so to speak. Uh, and I tried everything I could to get out of it. When I went to the interview, I just listened to this general drone on. And then at the end, he said, do you have any questions? I said, well, if you make me do this, how long would I have to do it for? And I thought that would blow the interview. Well, kind of, <laughs> yeah, little did I know he found that entertaining. But yeah, show up your day, be here the day you finish school. But so it worked out being the best thing. Uh, I got a more strategic perspective I started working with the interagency and a much broader from that job than if I'd been that operator and ops planner or JSOC. So sometimes it does take leadership to dictate it. In today's culture and stuff, that sometimes can be a more challenging leadership uh, uh, role. You've worked with special operations groups all over the world. How do they compare to U.S. units and how do they even influence one another? Well, they're all spectacular. There isn't one I, I've seen that from the Australian SAS, New Zealand SAS, the British SBS and SAS, the Polish Grom, the German KSK or GSG9. I mean, they're all just absolutely spectacular. But I think the differentiator is, and this was my experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, they don't have the enablers. They don't have the assets we have. They don't have AC-130 gunships. They don't have special operations uh, helicopters. They don't have dry deck shelters. They don't have submarines. So as when we went into Afghanistan, we had these 
seven countries with us, and they were all spectacular. And I could assign any one mission to any one of them each night and knew it would be executed, but they didn't have the helicopters to get there. They didn't have the close air support. They didn't have some of the comms, you know. So, But in terms of capability, they were all very, very capable. And that came from the long history we have of training and working with each other, sharing standards, sharing tactics, techniques, and procedures, really building that community of special operations, which was one of the big payoffs from the creation of SOCOM. That never would have happened, and it paid such dividends for us you know, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, and other places, and will always be a differentiator between us and our, our competitors, those who aspire to define the world orders. We know it mm. now, and uh, not only our peer competitors, but also rogue nation states who want to compete. When we have that sort of capacity and capabilities, it differentiates it, so they're all different. I would note one interesting tidbit when we operated with all those countries, one of the shortfalls then became a timing issue. Anytime I gave a mission to one of those countries, the Germans, they had to go back and run it up their national chain of command, uh, which made a timing issue. Okay, here's the mission. Well, I got to go brief my, ooh, okay, well, then I can't send you tonight. I'll never get, uh, one country was a little different, the Polish Grom. They had been uh, chopped to us to do maritime interception operations in the Persian Gulf prior to the invasion of Iraq. When we kicked off the invasion, I turned to them and said, hey, can I assign you a task? And they said, yeah. I said, well, how long is it going to take you to chop it through your command? And they said, sir, once we came to you, we don't have to go back to our chain of command. We fall under you. Oh, okay. So that's one of those differentiators that most people don't understand. So Again, it may be uh, different for every conflict or any situation, but it was the political and chain of commands as opposed to the tactical capabilities of those units that decided their application and who made better or worse, not the skills of just those operators. That's interesting. So speaking on the in the role of technology and the, the assets that the U.S. has, the U.S. Secretary of the Air Force in maybe two years ago, Frank Kendall said that 2027 is when China will reach parity with the U.S. Well, isn't that the million-dollar question for everyone? And you can look at the things China is doing to expand their networks, build their military. You can see that they are going to be a pure competitor now. But to project when that will occur, not just from military capabilities, but political uh, needs is difficult. What I would say on that role, I think is very accurate. You can build 10 aircraft carriers. You can build 100 ships. Mm. We've got eight decades of experience. So where I don't think they're ever going to catch up, at least in my lifetime and probably yours, is experience. And so that I can't underscore how important that is. You know, one of the cornerstones mm. of our our foreign policy and our capabilities of a nation has always been projecting power. We've done that for eight decades. So building out the systems, and I mean every part of the systems, the people, the equipment, the communications, the locations to project power in the manner we do, I don't know if China will ever get there. And if so, it's going to take decades to gain that experience and knowledge that goes with that. As that 
plays out, what do you see the role of artificial intelligence being in that process? Huge. Everyone, I think everyone realizes that. The irony of that kind of opposite of my career, when DOD first started building, realizing AI, it was for metadata, it was for analytics, it was for intelligence. I still think we're in the nascent stages of that operational application of AI. And I think that's that's really what's going to be the differentiator. And we're starting to see that now. As you watch the, the war in Afghanistan, where drones were prevalent ISR platforms. I mean, we, we built up a full plethora from going from our first ISR platform in Afghanistan, as soon as we knew the airlanes were safe, was a P-3 submarine hunting uh, aircraft. The reason why, it had cameras on board, we could put SEALs on board, it, and we could communicate to overhead and watch a target, watch our people protect them. We then went to, you know, getting a PRED, then we built a PRED fleet, then we got X amount of orbits. But Drones were basically for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. If you've seen the conflict in Ukraine now, that whole paradigm has shifted. Drones are now um, kinetic solutions and a kinetic differentiator on the battlefield. So, and as you're seeing in Ukraine, unlike Afghanistan, it's not safe for any aircraft. You know, there's no manned aircraft flying over Ukraine because it's going to be brought down by one side or the other. I mean, look at what's happened to predators. How many predators have been lost now? The kind of the gigs off, gigs up. Yeah. You know, they can be targeted, and people are targeting them in a lot of different ways. So, and all of that. So, the man over the battlefield is is becoming a much tougher dimension. Drones are being challenged, especially the larger ones, which are are targetable, but drone warfare is upon us. And what artificial intelligence will do in both of those domains is a force multiplier. You'll be able to, not one drain, not two drones, but a lot of massing of drones that can operate in a GPS denied and no comms environment. That That's going to be a real differentiator, and that's going to really change the landscape of how we, we will fight. And you're seeing that uh, Under Secretary of Defense uh, Kathleen Hicks, I think, was mentioning that uh, as a concern in China. Are we going to be able to fly F-35s in China, or are we going to have to rely on unmanned aircraft? And if we do that, operational artificial intelligence will be a real differentiator. One final question that I think also ties into the evolution of warfare through special operations kind of roundabout way. In in 2013, you wrote about the importance of women's rights and female education and said that if we think it's acceptable to give only half our population opportunity, then we will only reach half our potential. As 10 years ago, what progress do you think we've made there so far? Well, I hope, and I'm not down at the tactical level, but when I go on a ship, I see the diversity. I see the women. We. I don't know if our Navy could operate now without women. And this, back to the China, back to this, how we're doing overall, we're realizing the full potential of our, our manpower, our women power, or, or, or our mm-hmm. people, I would say. Let's just put that right. When we have the ability, and, and you've seen what's happened this year, we've had a tough time meeting our recruiting goals. Mm-hmm. So now we have twice the 
opportunities because every individual can serve in the military as long as they're not doing drugs, they haven't been arrested, you know, the criteria to get in. We have a much bigger gene pool to draw from, but we're also driving that experience. So that's where I think it's really where we're going to see where we have, uh, as you're seeing now, uh, a much greater diversity in our leadership, which will inspire and encourage others to follow that path. And so that's going to be a competitive advantage for us when we look at others we deal with. And we know how, uh, how important a volunteer force is. Uh, you're seeing that in Russia and Ukraine right now, the differentiate of a, a small professional versus a large conscript force. Yeah. Those are, are really, truly success stories. And, you know, I was the last legacy. My class at the Naval Academy was the last all-male class. So I've seen it from, from kind of from cradle to where we are today. And it's it's an incredible success story. And I think that thing is only going to continue to build momentum uh, and build out so that every young person will understand and see the opportunities that lie in a military career and service to our nation. So I'm encouraged by all of that. That's great. Two uh, quick final questions closing questions. What's the best advice and the worst advice that you've ever gotten? I think, you know, I'm a pretty uh, focused on physical well-being, physical and mental well-being. So I think that's some of the best advice I go to encourage people to how to take care of themselves, kind of what you're doing. How do we encourage and take care of everyone? And the term I use is the gouge. How do we mm -hmm. help people think and be smarter than the situation they're in. What information do they really need to know? So I hope I've given a lot of good advice in that regard. Uh, bad advice. Oh, I'll tell you what. The, okay, I'll tell you. And maybe it wasn't advice. Maybe it was more astonishing. We'd come out of Afghanistan. This kid who ran some of our best ops, Hazar Gadam, and he comes into my office. After we come back, we were, came back to San Diego before we launched for Iraq, and he says, Hey, sir, I'm going to get out of the Navy. I said, what are you thinking about? We're in our heyday now. We've trained you. You should never get out of the Navy. You should do, go get, stay in the reserves. And he looks at me and goes, oh, sir, I'm not getting out of the Navy. I'm just not going to be a SEAL. I go, what? I couldn't believe it. We're in our heyday, you know, because I'd been at peace somewhat for 20 years. And now we were, we were really in stride. And he said, no, it's too hard in my family and, and too hard. And so I said, what do you want to do? He says, well, I'm going to be an astronaut. I looked at him, I said, what, what do you think you are? You think you're a freaking rocket scientist? And he looks at me and goes, well, sir, I am. I, I wanted to go across <laughs> the table and choke him out when he said that. And because and, he was, and he's spot on. And his name was Chris Cassidy. Okay. And, and so all the advice I could give him was irrelevant because he knew where he was going. Like most our SEALs, he knew where he was going. He knew what he was on. And Johnny's another example of that. And, and probably that's the best thing about our community. We attract those sort of people who, who want to be challenged, who want to serve, who want to make a difference and do stuff. And I think those uh, the two guys you just mentioned are perfect examples mm -hmm. of that. And so yeah. may we always have those sort of guys in our community. And may the stuff you're doing help them get there. So God bless you for what you're doing, Greg. And any time I can help you, please let me know. But stay on it, my friend. I will. Thank you. That's it for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend.